Thanks for all the questions and for printing neatly. <laughs> Makes it easier. So I'll just read them. Uh, the first question, hi Mark. Share three direct experiences, insights, that have transformed your understanding of dukkha, anicca, and anatta, unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, and the impersonal nature, in your own practice of 30 plus years. Well, it's always a little hard to capture insights into words, but uh, some of you have heard these before. And uh, I think maybe just as a... um, a statement about insights. Sometimes the ones that seem really big or stand out as arising in a particular time and place are really the accumulation or the uh, expression of accumulated insights. But then that's when, uh, sort of that was the fruit of many little glimpses or seeing what the mind hadn't seen before. So uh, even today, one of the most powerful was right at the beginning for me in 19, um, 1982, um, right when I was starting meditation and just seated the pants, doing a lot of thinking and a lot of reading and uh, not much practice. And uh, in any case, I, I was really interested in understanding the experience of death. And in in particular, the psychological experience of death. Like, what does it mean to not exist? Or to lose everything? Including thought, or, you know, as, as much as I could imagine, consciousness. And uh, so I was really moved by reading that Ramana Maharshi uh, was really interested in this when he was young. He's a well-known Indian saint who died in the early 50s, 1950s. Had quite an influence on the Advaita Vedanta movement uh, around the world. And so uh, I was uh, house-sitting this beautiful place outside of Washington, D.C., where I was living at the time. And I did a lying down meditation and I sort of went through these sort of reflections about, you know, losing, letting go, not having any more until I had concocted in my mind the experience of nothing, not attached or having anything. And, uh, That was sort of interesting. Just uh, like whatever my mind would bring to mind, I'd say, well, that wouldn't be happening at that. Or that wouldn't, the mind wouldn't know that at that or something like that. So I was reflecting in this way. And then uh, it's like one of those times when 
it appears a voice arises in your own mind. I don't know if that actually happens that way, but it, it has that appearance, some voice of wisdom or voice of understanding. Ask the question, some, I can't remember the exact words, uh, but something like, uh, for who, for whom would this be a problem? The not having or the non-attachment. And, uh, again, it's always hard to describe these things in, in words, but it was a really powerful experience and I was quite disoriented for a while, uh, weeks after that. <laughs> There's a funny story. Some of you know this, but, uh, it, it, it was an interesting time where I, I had just left a job that I'd had for a couple of years at a management consulting firm in Washington, D.C. And I was going to start up with a new firm. Um, but I had this like three-month, three-and-a-half-month period that I had negotiated between when the one job ended and the other job began. And I was about to take off to Alaska and the West Coast for backpacking and sort of hanging out in the wilderness. And uh, this was right at the beginning of that period of time, which was sort of fortuitous. So anyway, after that experience, I, I was pretty disoriented, which is not the kind of insights we're looking for <laughs> that disorient us. But that's how it was for me, because uh, something had changed, and I didn't have a clue. I was pretty green at this point um, about the mind and about everything uh, having to do with the path, and, uh, and I, I kept feeling something like I was wearing a hat, but I wasn't wearing any hat. I didn't know anything about the chakras or anything like that. It just always felt like there was something on the top of my head. And then a few days after that, I was back in Minneapolis uh, where my folks lived uh, before meeting up with a friend of mine in Seattle to go up to Alaska. And we were going to do an ice climbing course before we went up to Alaska. And... Uh, I was at REI getting some equipment, and I leaving, I walked out the wrong door and right into plate glass and broke it. <laughs> I, was a, I was a space cadet. I'm not, normally, I, it wasn't in my nature or personality to be a space cadet, but after that, I was a space cadet for a while. One of the first things we did in Alaska is we uh, uh, hooked up with my, my good friend who I, I did this trip with, his cousin, who was a, a salmon fisherman um, on the Kodiak on Kodiak Island, so uh, we we did a little fishing trip, and Peter Peter and I sort of were along for the ride and, and also helped a little bit as much as we could. But anyway, one of the people on on crew on that boat uh, knew a little bit about spiritual practice and kind of got me grounded. Uh, about what had happened, and uh, and then I just uh, every time we got into a town with a bookstore, I gobbled up anything they had on meditation or Buddhism, and that whole summer was kind of digging in. It was really um, it was a really great time for me to have that much space, and I spent a lot of the summer by myself. My the friend that I went up to Alaska with, he left after three weeks or so, so I had most of the time just on my own, um, hitchhiking and backpacking, and but just mostly being alone and being really on fire with meditation. 
and just trying to understand the mind and what had happened. And so, you know, I'm not sure how to characterize that experience, but somehow <coughs> the uh, what I expected this contemplation on death to be a personal loss, somehow there was some wisdom in the mind that was uh, didn't quite buy in to that interpretation of imagining not having anything. And when the mind recognized that perspective or that understanding, um, there was a real shift in worldview from a, a worldview that was pretty much established in death being bad to at least uh, a worldview that it was an open question. What, if anything, it meant? Death. So that was, uh, kind of got me on the path. By the way, I, I got back, started my job, and I think two or three weeks into the job, I, I told my new boss that I had to quit. <laughs> I, I needed to, I wanted to practice, and it, it wasn't suitable conditions for doing a lot of practice. Um, so I, that's when I moved out to Berkeley after that. Few more twists and turns. So that was one. And then, uh, about 16 years later, I was doing my first three month retreat at IMS in uh, 1998. And uh, somewhere in the middle of that retreat, maybe two thirds of the way through that retreat, Joseph Goldstein was uh, really prompting me, you know, a lot like what I'm doing at this retreat, such and such is being known. You know, this is being known, this is being known, this is being known. And then, known by what? So just to throw in that question from time to time. Known by what? And often in this sort of investigation, it isn't so much what you find, but what you don't find. So one morning, I was doing walking practice outside, and uh, I was using the six sense gates, uh, just just aware of the sensitivity at the six sense gates. Seeing is being known, hearing is being known, sensations being known, thoughts being known. Every once in a while, known by what? Whether I would actually verbalize it or just sort of look or be interested, known by what, known by what. And uh, and then at just uh, at some point, there was uh, an understanding arose in the mind or seeing arose in the mind that there isn't anything outside of objects being known. There's nothing behind it. There's nothing doing it. There are just objects being known. And this is a very classic uh, insight on the path. In some traditions, they call it, I think it would be called sort of the insight into the mind and body, which is a little bit of a confusing title. But but it's basically that, that in any moment, it's just something being known. Some aspect of the body, for example, being known. A knowing mind, knowing an object, with nothing else. And so it's a, a clarifying experience of anatta, the impersonal nature, when the mind, just as a glimpse, recognizes that there isn't anything else besides objects being known. Meaning that 
But but it, more importantly, it's the uh, because it's just seen as uh, object being known, and the knowing uh, is so tied to the object being known that it it really eliminates the conception of self. It's like the mind understands there's just no place for self in according to one's direct experience. So that's the that's the big change. It's the um, you know the removal like in that experience at least the removal of a sense of self that's there having the experience of objects being known or part of the experience or in that experience. And uh Yeah, it uh, it it sustains and then fades as an overwhelming experience. But you know, it gets replicated. The first time is obviously more surprising and shocking and lightening, kind of lighting lightens things up. You know, it's a it's a experience you don't forget. At least in my case, um, but no, I don't think it. For me, at least, I mean, I, I can imagine depending on the kind of insight somebody has. Like I, I wouldn't. Don't think of this as sort of the end of insight. It sounds that way, you know. It sounds like God. If I, if there's no self, all your problems are solved. But as you're suggesting, that the momentum of putting a self, the mind, like which is a natural conditional process, putting a self back in is there but now more and more the mind uh, it can't necessarily stop itself but it knows more and more what it's doing that that it's doing that it's projecting a sense of self that it's projecting or constructing a sense that this feels personal but it's a it's a lot more porous and whenever the mind like in my case you know if I reflect on it it's always apparent that it's not personal. But that doesn't mean it doesn't feel personal or the first wave of feeling isn't that. But if the mind looks in an honest way, that understanding is always confirmed. No, no, that was... Uh, <laughs> well, the, there's a lot of energy and uh, that can be disorienting. But... Uh, one of the ways the insight sustained is that whatever the mind, at least in the immediate, you know, days, I suppose, afterward, I mean, it was, it was a pretty transforming experience. So, but in the days afterward, whenever the mind would want to personally do something with all the energy, the mind would understand that's just something being known. So it, it immediately undercut Dramas that might arise. And then the last I'll mention is uh, just 
an insight that's happened quite regularly now uh, over the last few years in some ways is more liberating is just uh, you know being quite immersed in life and responsibilities and conditioned patterns of the mind and at times from a self-centered point of view, that wave I was talking about, you know, it's like it can feel oppressive or feel like something precious is being ruined or stained. And it's like, I got to get myself out of here or I got to get myself on a retreat or I got to, you know, run off into the woods. So that comes up a lot. And then when it comes up, though, the insight that arises is uh it's like just turning it on its head and really seeing that you know that this is the uh this is really the purification of view uh that there's somebody that can be stained or contaminated by my internal messiness or the external messiness around me uh too much to do too many crazy people around me with their own stuff, being projected on me. I mean, that, that's the story. <laughs> so all of that, you know. And then, and then just that natural conditioned response to like, get the hell out of there. Run away, hide. I always joke about getting a place on the south shore of Lake Superior. And then, uh, and then upon reflection, like when the mind stabilizes and really turns, wisdom turns toward that experience, get me out of here, just to really, the mind seeing, you know, it's like a real turning of the mind, like, oh, this submission to exactly what I don't want to submit to, that the conditioned mind doesn't want to submit to, is the purification of that view, of right view. Like, even this is not personal. Even uh, exactly what you think is opposite of dharma is dharma. <laughs> or nothing should be clung to, nothing should be attached to, no matter what, no matter how important it seems. But the clinging isn't the appropriate response. Now, it doesn't mean that I shouldn't do this or do that with my life. But the fear or the attachment isn't isn't the way, isn't helpful. So those are some of the insights that come to mind. Second question. When working with fears, is it ever skillful to imagine as if the fears came true? And see, and see it, that could be okay. And see that it could be okay. Or given our mind's ability to create our reality, is it best not to let our mind stream go there? Perhaps you could talk about the different strategies for working with fear. Particularly those that seem major, uh, intractable. Yeah, I think there's probably a place in practice to, uh, bring fears to mind 
Uh, I'd be a little bit, well, I mean, I would be wise about it because sometimes we'll bring them to mind because we're greedy to be done with it or we're aversive and we want it to be over with. Um, But when you have actual curiosity and you assess the mind as stable, you know, that, that curiosity really is coming from a stable place, then yeah, like a little bit like that insight I talked about bringing death to mind, for example, or the last insight I talked about. So I think it is useful to, at in the right moments, to turn the heart right at exactly what the heart is afraid of, the conditioned mind is afraid of, the conditioned mind doesn't want to say yes to. The conditioned mind imagines it's going to be eaten alive if it relaxes with this. But Because how else will we discover that that's not the case? But it's not, it, it can't be our only strategy with fear. You know, so it, it's like any of these uh, challenging places in life and practice, we want a handful of skillful means to work with fear. We want to understand that Fear and any kind of aversion doesn't uh, exist in the mind that has a lot of loving kindness in it. So that that creates a sense of empowerment around fear that we can get some distance from it. So that when we invite it in and ask it to stay, it's not it's not because um, we're out of balance. And it took us by surprise, and we don't have any choice, but it's intentional. Like, I don't want to be surprised by you anymore, so I'm going to keep you in view my whole day long, my whole life long. I don't want to forget any of these possibilities of loss, of death, of cancer, of whatever scares you. You know, in Buddhism, it is unbelievable the kind of images they ask people to use in order not to be forgetful of what's possible. One of the most poignant, I think, is in the Tibetan tradition. But it's the image of a mother watching her child being swept away by a river or a flood. And that, or a father too, I suppose. Uh, but that visceral terror and feeling of helplessness, of not being able to do anything. So to find that there's a heart, a mind that can make space for everything. We've had a person in our community, she doesn't come around much, who just had one of those terrible things happen. They were canoeing, she and her husband and her child, I think the child maybe was three and a half, maybe four. And, uh, and they got, you know, the canoe tipped and they were sort of pinned between the canoe and the current and the child was, I think, on the other side. Anyway, they couldn't get to the child, but they were right there. And of course, feeling helpless and the child drowned. So these very powerful poignant images, they can haunt us. 
I had some experiences even before I found the Dharma when I was in college, some really terrifying, violent images, which are pretty unusual. I had sort of a really peaceful, easy upbringing for the most part. I mean, normal insecurities and everything, but nothing violent. And uh, but anyway, the, these images would come to my mind, especially if I was ever intoxicated. And pretty regularly. And I had some instinct at some point to uh, not shy away from really violent images, just in my own mind. And uh, just sit with it. Exactly, you know, the kind of thing that you just... And I just somehow had the right instinct to just relax and let it happen. You know, sort of a uh, a bravado, like just bring it on. I am tired <laughs> of hiding from this. I'm tired of this sneaking up on me. And it did. It just played itself out in graphic terms. It's actually related to a scene from a movie which I won't bring up <laughs> because some of you have seen that movie and then that image may, be, may haunt you for a while. Um, and it was as if it were happening to me. So, there, I've had several examples of these kinds of fears, both that more physical, aggressive, violent thing, but also social fears that uh, I practice turning toward and making peace with. So I think uh, I think this is an important part of working with fear and finding a way to do that. So you're you're really doing it from the place of intention, wise intention and not feeling forced into it. I mean, I think it can work when you're forced. You're sort of trapped in a corner. There's nothing to do but turn toward or but relax. There's an interesting story that Ajahn Sushita, one of the senior Western monks in the Ajahn Chah tradition, writes, he did this tudong, this walking practice in India with a layperson, and they were in this really remote area where there were bad people, you know, who would rob you, take everything. Anyway, they eventually, uh, this gang approached them in the middle of nowhere, and his lay supporter ran away to save his life, and Ajahn decided not to run away. And so they were, you know, threatening him, and, and, uh, again, I don't know if it was bravado or what, but as he describes it, you know, he just, he, he bowed down and then he, he, the guy had a machete and he sort of pointed his, his neck, you know, just sort of offering himself to the guy, you know, and they were all hyped up, as you might imagine, um, people in that situation would be to sort of do this sort of thing and, you know, be really threatening and after a while, you know, backed away and, uh, so Ajahn, put his stuff down, they grabbed it, and left. And then his lay supporter came back. <laughs> I guess he was hiding, you know, 100 meters away in the in the brush somewhere. But he writes about it. You can get it in his book. I'm forgetting what it's called now. Rude Awakening. He has two books about that, that walking practice he did in India. They walked for quite a ways. The other thing about keeping it close, keeping those really seemingly big fears close, 
is it begins to normalize it. Something that's really terrifying, it seems like we should hide from it or tuck it away in a closet. But if you keep it right next to you, if you talk to somebody about it or talk to people you trust about it, there's something about ventilating it and normalizing it that makes it less formidable. When we're running from it, when we feel we can't talk about it or even think about it, it makes it much more uh, threatening. So the more you can just, oh yeah, there's that, there's that feeling, there's that idea, there's that content in the mind. Why do you use the word schizophrenic? Because it feels like it's somebody else. I said it doesn't feel like me. And so the, 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 what isn't scary is just a little puzzling. And it made me think of, well, maybe in past life I was very violent. Or, you know what I'm saying? So I was, but mm. my question has to do with, do you have people come to you very often and say, I have these weird images coming to Oh, sometimes, I suppose. But the, the, one of the things is the mind, uh, when things settle down, you know, being on retreat, there's just fewer distraction, the distractions. The mind gets much more bright, much more creative. And if there's not uh, sufficient calm, the mind just feels compelled to do stuff with the energy that it has. It just wants to stir the pot. And it has no shame. It will do anything. <laughs> Lusty, uh, horrific, uh, you know, just anything. So what do you, do with that? you understand it's just a thought, right? And if there's no feeling, no, uh, make sure there's no feeling. If there is, recognize the feeling. Oh, there's this feeling that's with that thought. If there's no feeling, there's, there's a thought with no feeling. And, Try to get a sense of what are the supporting causes for those sorts of things arising. Because there's all kinds of stuff that arise as the mind gets quieter. And and retreatants or meditators have to be quite skilled. This is where it's useful to have somebody to talk to, especially if you start believing these things. Um, because, they, because the mind is so bright, they... They are like hallucinations. They have as much reality as anything because the mind creates it just like this. So it can create a different reality. And normally, you know, that only happens in dreams when we're asleep. But it doesn't, it isn't actually restricted to that. There can be waking dreams too. And uh, the mind is just constructing something and projecting it in the mind. And clearly it can do that. A lot of the times when that happens, we'll think, I'm doing that. But when we're more honest, we realize, no, I'm not doing that. It's just, you know, it's thought, thoughting, or image, imaging. And, uh, and then the question, is there an underlying restlessness in the mind? Or a fear of the boredom, a fear of nothing happening? It's always going to be this way. 
and wanting to create some drama because that's more familiar and it might get us away from what might feel a little threatening, the quieting of the mind, seeing things a little bit more clearly might feel a little threatening, so creating a disturbance might uh, feel a way to stay, keep the mind safe, you know, the conditioned mind safe. But it's not like you're reasoning this all out. It's just causes and conditions. But this is just a story I'm telling you that to normalize that experience. And then the, I think the same person had a continuing or related question about fear. I'm noticing that the conditioning, the condition patterning, patterning that seems to be causing the most dukkha in my life right now has all but entirely dissipated within me, within the environment of the retreat. As a result, there's a great deal of clinging to the retreat experience or greed, grasping, as well as a great deal of fear and aversion that the patterning could come back once I return home. And yet the practice is here in this moment. So if I keep bringing as much clear awareness to this moment, and the next, etc. Who knows if it will come back in, this, in the same way. I'm feeling a great deal of motivation and commitment to the practice, <coughs> but it's largely personal desire to release stress. Any comments on how to navigate delusional expectations versus energy, joy in the practice, a sense of mo- uh, motivation, inspiration that feels spiritual in nature? Well, you know, it's just the big of course, you know, when, when we get some benefit from being on retreat, because, I mean, this is really a teaching in anatta, that the impersonal nature at home, in a different environment, this is our reality, and we come on retreat, and it's a completely, or a very different reality. And we, just in a really basic way, we get the sense, we enforce that reality is dependent on conditions. It's not like there's reality. It's reality arises out of the circumstances, out of the conditions, both internally and externally. So who am I? This neurotic person back home or this more calm, energized person here? Well, both. You know, when the mind's there, then this is the mind that arises. When the mind's here, just like even here, how many different minds have you seen? all over the place. So, um, yeah, just keep practicing. The person says, so if I keep bringing as much clear awareness to this moment and the next, who knows if it will come back in the same way. That's right. What really will make the difference isn't the samadhi you have on retreat because that will dissipate that any insights you have about the nature of the mind will have a lot more resonance. So to whatever degree the mind realizes, to some degree or a lot, the, the empty nature, the impersonal nature of the mind, the activity of the mind, the conditioned mind, then that insight will uh, cause everything to be a little bit more transparent and porous 
so that when that difficult stuff reemerges, which it probably will, when you're back in those part of your life where the supporting conditions are there for it, but it won't look exactly the same. It will have all the same contours, same form, but it will be semi-transparent, depending on how much insight has been accumulated since it last arose. And then over the years, more and more, until it's just that, it's just that thing that's being known. And so then it doesn't really matter whether it arises or doesn't arise. That's actually a better way to think about some of these really difficult patterns, both physical patterns, like holding tension in different places, which can become so unnerving on retreat when we become more settled, and all of a sudden there's this very diverse and unpleasant array of body experiences that we can be aware of. And it's so easy to think, God, when I work through this, in the same way we might think about that in terms of some of our emotional baggage. Oh God, when I work through this neurotic self-consciousness or insecurity, or when I get past this or that pattern, emotional pattern, it might be better to think of it not so much as somehow purifying it so it never arises again, which of course is always nice when that happens, and it does happen that some of these physical, emotional, psychic patterns completely unwind and don't seem to re-arise. But more than that, I think, is the mind creating space for those things, those physical elements, whether they're subtle or gross, and the emotional stuff, like having the personality that you actually have. That That's okay, that we don't equate freedom with the transformation of our personality. That's more liberating. That's sort of what I was talking about with that last third insight that I mentioned. The, the conditions here, we remove ourselves from a lot of the gross manifestations of our attachments. So to relate without attachment is just a lot easier. This person asks, if the mind is open and clear, may we bring to mind the lists. And, uh, yeah, even when the mind's not open and clear, but especially then, the, not to sound like magical thinking, but, you know, people who have a lot of faith, not only in the Buddha's awakening, but also in his particular uh, power of articulating the dynamic of awakening, the, the process of awakening, like that the clarity, not just the mind being free, but the clarity of the mind 
understanding that process and being able to articulate it. So then, you know, people with that kind of confidence, we invest a lot of power in these lists because we see them like that they're not just a conceptual map. They're a conceptual map that lines up exactly with what's going on in the mind, with Dhamma, the way it is. So when we bring these maps to mind, these lists to mind, first we have to think about them, we have to hear it, we have to study them, we have to think about them, we have to begin to map it on our experience. But then it, it's, a, it's a way to evoke wisdom. The ma- and, it, and it holds the wisdom too. So that in those places, in, in those moments in life where a lot of difficult conditions have been triggered or are arising, and so the tendency of the mind is to be less clear, have more doubt, then we can bring the teachings to mind and it's qu- they're quite literally a light in the dark. Like the, uh, the thing that Sam and Frodo got from the Elven Queen. Right? <laughs> a light for the dark places. Remember that? Those of you who have seen the movie, I'm sure you do, even where the spider is. They needed that light in the dark place. And we need the light in the dark place too. And these are the teachings. So, But you have to invest in them. So you have to be willing to put aside the, uh, you know, the doubt that we have a certain, I mean, there's a healthy skepticism, but there's also an unhealthy skepticism that nobody knows what they're doing. We can have a lot of arrogant confidence in this idea that nobody knows what they're doing or everybody is as ignorant about things as I am, or probably more ignorant. And so we can be dismissive. And, you know, there's, it's not like the Buddhist tradition is completely pure, or that, you know, ignorance hasn't crept in in different ways. I'm sure that it has. And whether we can figure out what is what are the teachings from a very wise mind and what is just stuff that got picked up along the way. So this is our predicament. But to dismiss it out of hand, I don't think is helpful. I think it's really useful to try it out. And if you have success, then to deepen the investment. And if you have more success, then to deepen the investment. Because you might find that these teachings are quite powerful. One such example, I mean, there are many, but one is, uh, well, recently we used the five jhanic factors uh, in the Buddhist studies classes. And I have found that those, that list of qualities that are leading to uh, greater and greater stability of concentration or of mind, that bringing them to mind really supports the settling of the mind. The same with the seven factors of awakening. And I think also with the hindrances. Like really knowing what aversion is, really knowing what greed is, really knowing what restlessness is, gives the mind some real power. It's like they used to say, you know, if you know the name of the dragon, you have some power over it. If you don't know its name, 
you're in trouble. <laughs> right? So I think it's the same thing with the defilements or the torments of the mind. Don't feel you have to learn them all. Just start with one that you're attracted to or for whatever reason seems first and use it. And then as your confidence and benefit from it builds, then your interest will naturally take you back for more. Unfortunately, some of the ways that these lists are talked about can be quite dry. So you have to find a teacher's voice that really resonates with your experience. Fortunately, there's way too many voices out there these days. So you shouldn't have trouble finding one that works for you if you don't mind being a little confused by all the voices. There are times when thinking about the past or future feels skillful. When I apply learning from the present moment to a remembered experience or to a future hypothetical experience and am aware how I could react skillfully. Am I missing something? I don't think so. (laughs) I think that's right. Thinking about the past and future can be skillful and it can also be not skillful. And part of what makes it skillful is, is it the right time to do that? So in a way, we've created this retreat not so much as a time to do that, although we will spend time here thinking about the past and thinking about the future, thinking about the present. So if you're doing that, don't think you're wrong or bad because, of course, that's going to happen. And then when we do that, let's do that skillfully. I mean, the whole part of the whole path is the being sensitive to and um, cultivating an understanding of the feeling of remorse, wholesome remorse. It's very valuable information coming out of the past. All those mistakes will be lost. All the learning from those mistakes will be lost if there didn't exist in the heart and the mind skillful remorse and skillful concern, right? Be careful. Don't do that again. Remember what happened? So, uh, the question is how much thinking and what kind of thinking. And here's the thing. So much of what played out in the past or might play out in the future is playing out right now. You know, the forces of greed, anger, and delusion are at play right now. So it's better, actually, instead of uh, thinking hypothetically about what might happen. And I do think there's a place for it, so I'm not saying no. Like, if you're entering a difficult situation tomorrow, to use your imagination and imagine how practice can make you more skillful, it's like a dress rehearsal. But then when you're there, you're not imitating, you're imagining how to practice so that when you're there, you're practicing. But it's mostly better to just practice now with what's arising right now. So if the past or the present or the future is arising, then the mind understands that's a thought. And it understands, is there aversion with that thought or greed with that thought or delusion with that thought? Is that thought skillful or unskillful? Otherwise, we, if, if this is all we do, we keep reinforcing the idea of a me that was there in the past, that will be there in the future. And we're um, 
missing the deeper insights. Because the deeper insights understand that anything future is a thought now, anything past is a thought now. There's only objects being known now. That's it. There's nothing more. There never has been anything more. Never will be anything more. So when we're thinking about the past and the future, we're definitely in our story. So thinking about it can make our story better, which is why it's not unskillful. But it's a limited kind of skill. I'm having a difficult time imagining taking many of my regular activities from a place of right effort, for example, reading for pleasure, artistic creativity. Need these activities need to be done in an experiential, experimental, investigative manner to be done with right effort? Well, what is right effort? Right effort is... Um, you know, just the basic caretaking of the mind. So it's really, it's just an act of compassion. Right effort looks at the mind, it sees what's afflictive, it does whatever it can that's skillful to remove or prevent toxic, afflictive qualities from arising and getting established in the mind. I mean, it's, it's just think about it in terms of a house. We would keep toxic afflictive bugs and creatures and fumes and other things from our house, why wouldn't we do that for our mind? And in the same way, we definitely spend a lot of time bringing in beautiful things and making the home beautiful. Why wouldn't we do that for our mind? So right effort, fundamentally, is basic caretaking of the mind. Don't make it something more noxious than that. It isn't noxious at all. It's really, uh, yeah, just taking care. So think of the four exertions, preventing, abandoning what's unskillful, and developing and maintaining what's skillful. Thinking, think of them as the very height of functionality or competence. That's what it means to be a competent human being is that we're able to prevent and abandon noxious states of mind and develop and maintain wholesome, beautiful states of mind. So, why couldn't we do this reading? It's like, there we are reading. Why wouldn't we want this reflective part of the mind understanding everything that's at play as I'm being entertained by this great mystery novel um, or TV show or even, you know, just think of whatever you think is a superficial activity. Why wouldn't we want to tease out qualities of mind that are in the way of having a wholesome state doing what we're doing? Why wouldn't we want to bring in wholesome qualities because wholesome qualities, they're wholesome, they're pleasant. They're not noxious or hard to bear. But if we have this idea that practice is about only certain experiences, that's wrong view about practice. Now, 
for samadhi practice, that's true. When we're doing samadhi practice, when we're training the mind to gather itself around a particular experience, then other experiences are in the way. So they need to be abandoned and we need to bring the attention back. But when we're cultivating wisdom, it's an awareness-oriented practice, not an object-oriented practice. So it doesn't matter if you're watching Masterpiece Theater or taking a walk by the river or chatting with a friend and making and eating a big pasta dinner. We want to live with a skillful mind. We want to abandon unwholesome qualities and cultivate the wholesome qualities. Because it helps eating pasta and it helps doing all the other things we're going to do with the mind. And maybe, you know, maybe the question is asked from the point of view is, well, maybe if my mind's really imbalanced, I won't make pasta because I don't do so well with wheat. And then, but I, I want to eat pasta. So, I mean, it is true that if we cultivate a balanced, wholesome mind, it's going to take care of us no matter what the conditioning says, right? So, if you don't want to be taken care of, don't cultivate a wholesome mind. And that we have this sort of, uh, it's like, yeah, we want to be wholesome, but maybe not quite yet. I I once read, without a sangha, a person's practice would die. What are your thoughts on this? Could you elaborate what sangha or what a or a sangha is? Well, one one thing, one way to approach this question is just to ask, uh, like, could we be doing what we're doing these nine days if we were at home? What's what are the odds? That you would be, and I'm not saying that we're training our mind in a perfect way, but we're, we're working. You know, we're not just letting the mind do what it's, it wants. We're really investigating. We're getting interested. We're training the mind in really powerful ways. So what would the odds be that we would actually do it with the same integrity as we're doing it here in community? So that's one aspect of Sangha is that the collective, the cumulative intention, wholesome intentions that we all have is greater than the sum. So we put all these intentions together and it's a very powerful force. It's so it's harder to deviate. You might want to, you know, take out your cell phone and walk five miles away so no one will catch you and check the news or check your emails or, you know, and maybe you have. And so practice forgiveness. And don't break the container again. But it's it would be hard to do that because we feel responsible for each other, the commitment we make to each other to hold the container together. So that's why we, you know, take the time where Gabe goes through the instructions and you've got how many emails before the retreat telling you all of the guidelines and all the different parts of the retreat because we're gathering all of our intentions 
and it makes it really powerful. Sangha technically means, refers to enlightened Sangha. So when we take refuge in Sangha, we're really taking refuge in the enlightened qualities or the beautiful qualities that arise out of an enlightened mind. Now, <laughs> we don't really know what qualities, but I think in any group like this, you know, or at Common Ground, you know, there, there may, we may not find somebody whose actions and thoughts and words are consistently enlightened, but at any given time, there may be people who have enlightened actions, enlightened thoughts, enlightened words. So collectively, there's always somebody modeling the path or modeling freedom or modeling wisdom and compassion. And they stand out. And it's not always the same person, not always done in the same way. And in some ways it makes it more powerful because we see that diversity of these enlightened qualities shining through people. When they're naturally, spontaneously, effortlessly generous or kind or able to renounce, to let go. And it's a sight to be seen. So it's 8.30. I have uh, a more elaborate question about awareness. I'll do that at 8, uh, at the end of the 8.30 set, that 15 minutes where we normally do Q&A. I'll pick that up then. Let's just sit for a minute. Thanks again for the questions. Let go of the words. Thanks for listening, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.